0: What's extraordinary about the letters is that neither one of them had an agenda when they were writing the letters. They just sat down and wrote. They're spontaneous, they're free-flowing, almost stream of consciousness, and they're both just pouring out their ideas, their responses to the people and places um, where they were, and they're incredibly immediate and and free-flowing.
1: That was Sarah Grino. She was talking about the correspondence between artists Alfred Stieglitz and Georgia O'Keeffe. Sarah Grino is the editor of My Faraway One, Selected Letters of Georgia O'Keeffe and Alfred Stieglitz, Volume One. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. There are few couples in 20th century American art more prominent than painter Georgia O'Keeffe and photographer Alfred Stieglitz. They first began to write to each other in 1915. He was in his early 50s and famous. She was in her late 20s and unknown. By the time of Stieglitz's death in 1946, the two had exchanged some 5,000 letters. Through these letters, we follow the contours of their relationship, their meeting and falling passionately in love, their successes and failures in carving out a life together, the near demise of their marriage and its final reinvigoration. If these letters only described their relationship and their grappling with personal and professional fulfillment, my faraway one would be doing a great service. But the letters selected and annotated by Sarah Greeno also showed the evolution of Stieglitz's and O'Keeffe's thinking about art, their friendships with many of the influential figures in early American modernism, and their relationships with a wide range of figures in American and European culture, including Duncan Phillips, Diego Rivera, Frank Lloyd Wright, and Marcel Duchamp. My Faraway One becomes an intimate look at three decades of American culture. Sarah Greeno was the ideal choice to take on the project of editing the letters of Stieglitz and O'Keeffe. She's senior curator and head of the Department of Photographs at the National Gallery of Art. She was a friend to Georgia O'Keeffe and the author of Alfred Stieglitz's The Key Set. Her footnotes and interspersed biographical material gives these artists' letters a framework that enhances their meaning. The result is a book that reads like the overheard, decades-long, intimate conversations between two articulate, creative people who are passionate about their love and about their art. I spoke with Sarah Greeno when My Faraway One was first published. I wanted to know how she became involved with the project.
0: In 1981, Georgia O'Keeffe asked me if I would make a selection of the letters that she and Stieglitz had exchanged.
1: Alfred Stieglitz, the photographer.
0: Alfred Stieglitz, the photographer. At that time, I was working with O'Keeffe on an exhibition that was to be shown at the National Gallery. It opened at the National Gallery in 1983, And I had compiled a selection of Stieglitz's writings for that publication, both his published writings and letters. And so I'd gotten to know O'Keefe through that work. And she had, for a number of years, been wanting to see that correspondence published. After Stieglitz's death, she had gone through it. She'd had a number of her letters to him typed... She'd even asked a couple of people before me if they would work on it, and for a variety of reasons that didn't work out. So in 1981, she asked me if I would uh, make a book of their letters.
1: When we're talking about a book of their letters, this is a very prolific correspondence. What are we talking about here?
0: Between 1915, when they first began to correspond, and 1946, when Stieglitz died, They exchanged 25,000 pieces of paper, just a phenomenal amount of letters. These are letters that many of the letters are from 1915 to 1918 when Stieglitz is in New York and O'Keefe was primarily in Canyon, Texas. There are scattered letters then from the 1920s. And then in 1929, when O'Keefe started going to New Mexico, the correspondence really picked up again. But the letters describe in almost unimaginably rich detail their daily lives during the many months that, that they were apart. Daily O'Keefe's life in, first in Texas and then in New Mexico, Stieglitz's life in New York City and his family's house at Lake George, New York and the insights that the letters provide into early 20th century American art and culture is just extraordinary, um, amazing. But also the details that they provide about Stieglitz and O'Keeffe's life are equally as important and really revelatory in a way. But, but I think even more than that, what's so extraordinary about the letters is that we have here documents that trace the evolution of their relationship over this extraordinary period of time. What other important modern couple can you think of where you can read these very personal, very intimate letters? To be able to see that evolution of a relationship between two passionately committed, independent, focused individuals It's really extraordinary.
1: Let's go back to when they first met, which was in 1915. Explain Alfred Stieglitz's place in 1915. In
0: 1915, Stieglitz was the most important person in the American art world. He was an internationally acclaimed photographer. He had long been a proponent of the artistic merit of photography. He had founded a gallery in New York, which came to be called 291, in 1905, and there he had exhibited the finest examples of the art of photography, but also the most advanced European and American modernist painting and sculpture. So he had been the first person in this country to show Picasso, Matisse, Cezanne, Brancusi. He showed African art. He was absolutely at the peak of his reputation in 1915, 1916. They actually First corresponded in 1915, they met in 1916. And how old was he? Stieglitz was 52. And O'Keeffe at that point was a 27, 28-year-old nobody, really. She was a school schoolteacher uh, working um, in 1916, Plains of Texas, Canyon, Texas. She had studied art for a number of years, but her work was all but unknown, except to a few family and friends. Well, how did they get to meet? O'Keeffe had a very good friend from art school, a woman named Anita Pollitzer, who knew that O'Keeffe wanted Stieglitz to see her work more than anyone else in the world. She wanted to know Stieglitz's opinion of her work. And O'Keeffe would send Anita Pollitzer examples of her drawings, and Anita Pollitzer, one day in early January 1916, just took a roll of these drawings in and showed them to Stieglitz, and Stieglitz was deeply moved by what he saw. They began writing shortly thereafter. Anita Pollitzer wrote O'Keeffe and told her what Stieglitz had said about her drawings, and O' O'Keeffe was just emboldened to write him and ask him if he would tell her directly what he thought about them. And they started to correspond. And then later on in the spring of 1916, O'Keefe moved to New York to go to Columbia University Teachers College. And she went into 291. She'd gone to Stieglitz's Gallery 291 when she'd been an art student in New York before. But she went back again in 1916. And this is when she really began to, you know, to connect with Stieglitz when they started to have some of their first significant conversations.
1: And then she moved away again, and the correspondence really took off.
0: The correspondence picked up. In the summer of 1916, she moved first to Charlottesville, where her family was living, taught summer school at the University of Virginia and then in the fall of nineteen sixteen she moved to Canyon, Texas, which is about twenty miles south of Amarillo. And it was in the fall of nineteen sixteen that the number of their letters just escalated tremendously.
1: (laughs) In looking through the book, it was extraordinary to see them moving along so rapidly. And that's what struck me, was how quickly they began corresponding on Almost a daily basis, and then how intimate. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean intimate in a sexual way at this point, though that certainly came, but just how intimate and open they were about their feelings. Yeah,
0: yeah. O'Keefe, and I think in the early in the fall of 1916, in maybe September or October, she wrote Stieglitz and she said something to the effect of I think letters with such humanness have never come to me before. Despite
1: their different ages and positions in their career trajectory. Nonetheless, you, you say in the introduction that both Stieglitz and O'Keefe were both at a crossroads.
0: They were. Stieglitz's gallery by 1915, 16, was no longer quite the hub it had been a few years earlier. Because of all of his efforts in introducing modern European art to this country, a number of other galleries had been established in New York, and they started to drain attention away from Stieglitz. The war was also, of course, happening, although the United States was not yet involved with it. But that, too, was turning people's attention away from sort of the artistic avant-garde that Stieglitz had been such a focal point of before that. And Stieglitz's own personal relationship was changing a lot at that moment. He had been married for more than 20 years to a woman named Emmeline Obermeyer, and, and they, by that point, shared very little in common except for love for their um, only child, a daughter, Kitty. And Stieglitz was clearly deeply unhappy on a personal level, and that, too, starts to come out in his correspondence with O'Keefe. Um, he starts to describe his own his own loneliness. O'Keefe at that moment was also she was in Canyon, Texas. She adored um, the West Texas state landscape. She loved teaching, but she was also a little bit of a fish out of water there. She was, very outspoken, very independent, very feisty, didn't conform to sort of the small town notions of propriety. So she too, in a way, was lonely in that environment. And and you see them sort of both finding each other in their correspondence.
1: Well, then she returned east and they found each other in other ways. (laughs) (laughs) They
0: did. In 1918, O'Keefe had been quite ill. She then came back to New York in in the summer of 1918, June 1918, and she and Stieglitz began living together soon Soon thereafter. That wasn't initially why she came to New York. She came there because she wanted to see Stieglitz, but by July 1918, they were living together as an unmarried couple, which was also not something that was commonly done at that moment, but Stieglitz left left his wife. And the love, the passion that you see coming out in those letters from the summer of 1918 is really just phenomenal. And they
1: ended up marrying in 1924.
0: They married in 1924. And their correspondence throughout the 20s becomes a little bit more sporadic. They're living together, so there's obviously less reason to write But O'Keefe made a number of trips in the 20s, first to Maine and then to Wisconsin. She began to grow frustrated with the landscape that was around her on the East Coast. She was finding it somewhat difficult to find subjects to paint. So she went first to Maine, and the ocean in in Maine really did inspire her. But then in 1928, she went to Wisconsin to visit her family there and sort of reconnected with her Midwestern roots. And that, too, was quite inspirational for her. But also throughout the 20s, in the letters that do exist, you can see cracks beginning in their relationship. Stieglitz was a much more sedentary person than O'Keeffe. O'Keeffe wanted to travel far more than Stieglitz did. O'Keeffe very much wanted a home of their own and Stieglitz wanted to spend all of their summers at this family home that they had in Lake George, New York, where many of his brothers and sisters and their families and nieces and nephews would all come and descend on the house. And O'Keefe really felt as if they impinged upon her time to paint. But even more than that, you start to see the sort of restlessness there in their relationship as their sort of differing needs start to become more apparent.
1: How instrumental is Stieglitz, do you think, to Georgia O'Keeffe's career?
0: Oh, very instrumental. I mean, Stieglitz gave O'Keeffe her first exhibitions. He exhibited her work in 1916 in a group exhibition at his gallery exhibit, gave her her first one-person show in 1917. And then in the early 1920s, he gave her a number of exhibitions at galleries in New York, and that established O'Keeffe. But also what happened, of course, when O'Keeffe moved to New York in 1918, Stieglitz began to photograph her, making probably some of the most important nudes in American art history, period, certainly in the 20th century. And Stieglitz exhibited those nude photographs of O'Keeffe in 1921, Before he had a sense, in a sense, exhibited O'Keeffe, he wouldn't show her work again until a couple of years later. And to a great extent, when critics then looked at O'Keeffe's new paintings, they were seeing Stieglitz's photographs, interpreting her work through Stieglitz's nude photographs of O'Keeffe. And O'Keeffe felt really burned by that. Many, if you read the criticism from the time... You know, they talk about the swelling contours of O'Keeffe's hills, and it sounds as if they're, you know, describing one of Stieglitz's nude photographs more than O'Keeffe's paintings.
1: Well, often critics would sexualize her paintings, particularly the flower paintings, and that's
0: something that she really rejected. She did reject it, although she continued to paint very provocative imagery. Um, So... You know, she was very savvy about her work. And she wrote a comment, not to Stieglitz, but to somebody else, that she realized a lot of people bought, acquired, and responded to art, as she said, as much through their ears as through their eyes, and that you needed to be talked about. You needed to have that reputation. And certainly her paintings of flowers made her talked about.
1: I think the fact that they were at different points in their career becomes very complicated for their relationship because O'Keeffe was talking about the way men wanted to write the great American novel. She wanted to do the great American painting, and the Southwest really provided the canvas for that.
0: It did. She had felt sort of increasingly stifled by the East Coast landscape and she had been to New Mexico briefly in 1917, really just taking a, a train passing through on her way to Colorado. And she wrote Stieglitz um, when she was there in 1917, and you can just see her you know, excitement. She's like a little kid almost bouncing off the walls. And so by the late 1920s, when she began to feel that she needed new places to explore to reinvigorate her art. New Mexico became a very logical place for her to go and her first letters to Stieglitz from the summer of 1929 when she just gets out there are just so extraordinarily exuberant. I mean she is clearly just over the moon not only with the landscape but also with the people that she's meeting there.
1: How did Stieglitz feel about her relocating to New Mexico?
0: Well she didn't relocate I mean she she would spend two to three months of most years between 1929 and his death in 46 she'd spend two to three months in New Mexico but every fall and winter and spring she was back in New York with him So they were never really separated. Not for years, but for months. That's a long time. It is is a long time. And
1: especially if you're Stieglitz and you worry about your health. (laughs)
0: Exactly. And in the summer of 1929, he almost falls apart because of her being out there. He literally just obsesses about her being away from him. He becomes fearful that she's being unfaithful to both him and to her art, concerned that she's... as my mother would have said, gallivanting around the Southwest and not painting the pictures that she was supposed to be painting out there. And he really falls to pieces that summer and clearly becomes almost in a way unbalanced by her departure. Um, And writes O'Keefe letters three, four, five times a day that summer, letters that are 25, 30, 40 pages in length, just rambling on and on about his fears, his concerns.
1: Of course, she's the one who should have had the concerns.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. Once O'Keefe starts going to New Mexico, Stieglitz started to spend much more time, focus much more attention on a much younger woman, Dorothy Norman, who was 40 years younger than Stieglitz. Um, She was someone who'd started to come to his gallery um, in the late 1920s. And beginning in 1930, 31, 32, Stieglitz and Dorothy Norman started having a very intense affair that neither tried to hide from either of their spouses. Both Stieglitz and Dorothy Norman believed that their relationship with each other was so special, so holy almost in a way, that it enriched all those around them. And it became extremely difficult both for Dorothy Norman's husband and also for O'Keefe.
1: You know what struck me as I was looking through the letters, and that is we're looking at two people who contributed so mightily to American modernism in terms of art, but we're also looking at two people grappling with the modern American family.
0: Two people grappling with the the modern American marriage, really. Yeah. And, you know, that is something for which they had very, they had no roadmaps. There were few models to follow. And I think actually some of the most beautiful poignant letters in the book are ones that O'Keeffe wrote back to Stieglitz in the summer of 1929 when he was falling apart and when she was trying to explain why it was so critically important for her to, to be out there. And she says something to the effect of what's between us is all right, but I need to be out here for my art. And if I am not sort of moving forward with my art, I can't be a strong, good partner to you. And that reconciling of how one can find love, enjoyment, and fulfillment, both in a marriage and in one's professional career, um, is really at the core of much of their problems from 29 through the 1930s. How
1: did Stieglitz respond to the paintings that Georgia O'Keeffe was producing when she was in New Mexico then?
0: Oh, he thought they were fabulous. Once she got back to New York and at the end of the summer of 1929, she wrote um, one of her friends whom she'd met in New Mexico and said that she'd spread all of her paintings out for Stieglitz the night before. And the two of them had just sat and looked at them with great smiles on their faces. And her response, uh, or what she wrote to the friend, was something to the effect of, I guess I won again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And what about Stieglitz's own work? What was he doing at that time?
0: Stieglitz was making a number of photographs of clouds. But in the early 1930s, he also embarked on making an extraordinary series of photographs of New York skyscrapers really among his most accomplished works at the time. Another interesting thing, though, to to sort of see and what happens in Sieglitz's work is he's he had photographed O'Keefe a lot in the late teens and, and early 20s, just these amazingly passionate, sensuous nudes. He had not photographed her much in the late 20s or early 30s. In the early 1930s, he starts photographing Dorothy Norman, and depicts her in a different way than he did O'Keeffe. She's much more of the docile, meek, adoring creature. But he does also make nudes of Dorothy Norman at a time when he's not photographing O'Keeffe nude. And he depicts O'Keeffe at this time as a very mature and accomplished and independent person, but very sexless, very cold in a way. Stern. Stern, yeah.
1: Now, you were friends with Georgia O'Keeffe. I knew her, yes, yeah. Did you approach the book both as a scholar and as a friend?
0: No. You know, O'Keeffe asked me to work on this in 1981. She really had very gave very few explicit instructions on what she wanted the book to be like, except that she said to make it beautiful and make it honest. And this quite typical of O'Keeffe, that sort of very terse to the point... And I took those really as the touchstones as I was working on this book. There are a number of letters that are very intimate and where you are listening in on a very private conversation between a married couple. And I wrestled with the fact of whether it was appropriate or not to be including that kind of letter in a publication like this, particularly ones you know that are talking about their sex life. And in the end, I decided that it was for a number of reasons, both because O'Keeffe herself was very open about the importance of her sexual relationship um, with Stieglitz. She was not prudish in any way at all. But also, their sexual, sexual relationship had clearly been one of the things that kept them together during difficult times. It was immensely enjoying and fulfilling to both of them. But also in the end, I felt that I couldn't give an accurate picture of the evolution of their relationship without including those kinds of letters. So I did keep them in. And as I made the selection of letters, I tried to create a balance between letters that tell us a great deal about American art and culture at that time that is otherwise not known, that reveal the impact, say, of major events in American history on two very articulate individuals, such as World War I or World War II, the Depression. But also in the end, I made it a selection of letters that really talks about the evolution of their relationship. So in the end, it probably became far more biographical than I had realized that it would be in the beginning, but that really seemed to me to be primary importance.
1: How did you go about organizing the material? Because it's a massive book and it's volume one. Mm -hmm. It ends in 1933, volume two is coming out from 33 to 46, which is when Stieglitz died. Why did you decide that was going to be the demarcation point?
0: Because first volume traces sort of the evolution of them falling in love, the relationship almost falling apart um, in the early 1930s. And then just at the very end of 1933, you see them beginning to pick up the threads of their relationship and start to figure out how it is from that point they could go forward.
1: What did you learn about early American modernism by looking through these letters that you didn't know?
0: there are just sort of new facts, new details that appear, I think, on almost every page of the, of the letters. Incidents that people didn't know about. Stieglitz and O'Keefe's chronologies are clarified immensely. But I think more generally, one of the things that you see is you see how much more poor everything was, then we often, as historians, treat it. People, um, particularly with early American modernism, tend to divide it into certain segments and to assume that the people, for example, who were inspired and, and close to the French artist Marcel Duchamp were not close or friendly with Stieglitz, for example. These are often seen as two quite diametrically opposed camps. Stieglitz is viewed as celebrating a more emotional, intuitive art, an art that's nature-based. Duchamp is a more theoretical, intelligent art focused more on modern technology. And people just have assumed that they're in very different camps. They had nothing to do with each other. And yet you read the letters and you see they're sort of all talking with one another. They're going to the same parties. They're in and out of each other's spaces and worlds to a phenomenal extent. So I think that was really extraordinary. And when can we expect volume two? (laughs) Volume two, we think, will probably be 2014, 2015.
1: Well, we look forward to it. Mm -hmm. Sarah Greeno, thank you
0: so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: That was Sarah Greeno. She was talking about the book, My Faraway One, Selected Letters of Georgia O'Keeffe and Alfred Stieglitz, Volume One. Sarah Greeno selected and edited the letters and annotated the book. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Winter Sunshine, from the EP Winter Sunshine, by Evgeny Grinko, courtesy of Creative Commons. The music can be found on freemusicarchive.org. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, singer and NEA Jazz Master Sheila Jordan. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. Or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.